What's up? How are we doing? Welcome back to Salt Company. So good to see you guys. Wow. Okay. There's the energy. Glad to see some people still have energy after the fall retreat. I know some of you were dying this week, so I'm glad to see that we have some faces that returned from East Iowa Bible Camp and are here and doing great. <clears throat> um, I, uh, if, you, if you don't know me, my name's Cole. I am super overjoyed to be here with you guys tonight and getting to open up the Bible with you and starting our new series, Adventures in Babylon. Isn't that a cool graphic? Right? Yeah, it's like a postcard. Each, each little letter signifies one of the stories in Daniel that we'll be kind of like going over, which is super cool. I thought so anyways. So thankful to be here with you guys. Thankful to be here post-fall retreat. There's always something that's interesting about the week after the fall retreat. And what's interesting about it is you sort of notice a difference from where you just were to where you currently are. So like we notice a difference from being at East Iowa Bible Camp, worshiping with other believers, sitting under the word of God with no distractions for most of us, right? Um, and then going back to our dorm floors or our roommates or our classes and suddenly being in a place where the focus isn't actually worshiping Jesus, but is, is something else. And we kind of like, we see they talk different, people talk differently, people have different interests. Um, it might seem like there's a lot more distractions that could take you away from the Lord just on our phones. In East Iowa, we obviously don't have cell phone reception, so that helps prevent some of those distractions. Or maybe you're literally just sick, and that's the difference between where you currently are and where you were at East Iowa Bible Camp when you felt great. A lot of things feel different coming back from a weekend like we just had. And honestly, if you weren't there, you probably can relate to this just leaving Salt Company on Thursday nights because things generally feel a little bit different when we leave these walls as well, right? It's like, um, this is maybe, yeah, the church is definitely the safest place in the entire world to be a Christian, but when we leave these walls, suddenly being a Christian gets a little bit more dangerous. It's like the person you're next to in class might not want to hear anything about Jesus. In fact, they might be like super hostile towards it. Or the, the person on your dorm floor might like cuss you out if you try to share the gospel with them or tell you like, oh man, you're just like an idiot for doing this thing. Or maybe it's not even persecution directly because of your faith, but maybe the difference is that you come home to something really, really hard, right? There's like some really hard stuff you're going through in your life that getting away for a weekend kind of just felt like a breather or coming here for an hour and a half every Thursday night is like, whew, I can just catch my breath for once, right? Just for a little bit of time. If it just helps to take my mind off of what's going on. And maybe there's a part of you that doesn't want to leave things like this, that doesn't want to leave these walls that we're in. There's something about this that just feels like maybe you're exactly where you should be. Like maybe I was created to be in an environment like this where I'm just with other people worshiping Jesus. There's a part of you that kind of feels like something is just right. But then you leave the warmth of an environment like this and you step out to the real world and the coldness that can come with that and the hardships that can come with that and the reality that 
things are not as they should be. And I would guess for all of us, we have some sort of experience like this, of being somewhere where it feels like everything is just kind of aligning, and then stepping out of that and being like, man, I think I was made for something different. We have little pockets where we feel like we found the place where we belong, and suddenly we're not in that place anymore. And for the Christian, what we're feeling is we are feeling the weight of not being in the homeland that we were created for. Right, Hamby talked about heaven last week. Every single one of us has a longing for that place where things will be as it should be. No more suffering, no more hardship, no more disease, no more sadness, joy, eternally, forever. Deep down, we know that's what we were created for. And we're experiencing the reality that God's people have experienced throughout the centuries, which is that we are exiles or foreigners in a land that is not our home. That's just how it is, right? This isn't the place that we're destined for. We know it. We're eagerly waiting for the place that is our home, but we're just not there yet. In fact, not only are we living in a place that's not our home, we're actually living in a land of death. And we can see it all around us. You really don't have to look far to see death, whether it's a person that you know, or whether it's um, like, literally we're in fall now. And fall is all about decay and death. That's what's happening all around us, all the time. We don't have to look far to see that we are literally living in a land of death. And God gives us these little glimpses into our homeland when we gather to worship and be with other believers as it's though like this, this echo of what's going to come. And we know we're waiting for it, but we're not there yet. And so the question of the night then is this, is how do I live in a land of death? How do I truly live in a land of death? Because we can exist in a land of death, but as people who are going to a homeland, how do I do it, right? That's kind of the big, the big question. And the best way that we can answer that question is by going back and looking what God's people have done before us because they have had the exact same experience of being in this land of death. And that's why we chose the, the Daniel series. It's because we actually see a people. So if you remember a few weeks ago, um, it's okay if you don't remember, but I preached over Nehemiah 8 and I gave the context of Nehemiah 8, which said like, we, it was the Israelite people coming out of exile back to their homeland. They had sinned against God. God let the Babylonians come and invade them. They are now going back to Jerusalem. Okay, Daniel, if this is the end of, if this is like their homeland, this is Nehemiah, then Daniel's like right here. It's like right after the Babylonians had invaded the Israelites and they are being carried into exile. They don't know how long it's going to be for. They don't know what's going to happen to them there. All they know is that all the security that they just had is gone. And all of the boasts that they had are gone. And all of the things that they had worked for are gone. So that's what's happening in Daniel. And that's why this is maybe the best place for us to look to answer this question. So 
We're going to be starting in Daniel 1, if you guys want to flip there. Daniel's right after Ezekiel. Um, if you just flip through your Bible, it's in the Old Testament. You'll eventually find it. It's not too far, but we'll start. Daniel 1 says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. For any of you guys who grew up in church, you should recognize those last three names. They're big characters. Okay, continuing on. Verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch, yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. If we want to know how to live in a land of death, then the first thing we have to do is we have to remember God's faithfulness. Before anything else, before any action steps, before anything that we ourselves are on our hands and feet doing, we have to remember that. For so long in Judah, for those of you guys who've read your Old Testament, or if you haven't, I'm about to explain, so that's great. For so long in Judah, they had this beautiful temple that they had created to go and worship God. The problem was that this temple that, became a that was a place for them to worship became a boast for them where they started worshiping the things in the temple and viewing them as their source of value and their source of worth and their source of glory rather than the one who they created the temple to worship. And so these people would come in and they would say, hey, let me show you my temple and all the riches that we have and look at how good Israel is and look at how powerful we are and look at how good everything is here. <clears throat> and that's why it's interesting that when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes away everything from the temple, he brings the things that were just in the temple of God over to the temple of his false god. The thing that was supposed to bring glory to God, this beautiful temple in Israel, but which became a thing that was worshipped itself, actually had no allegiance to the Israelites whatsoever. 
the thing that they found their glory in did not care at all about them. So if you guys have seen the cinematic classic Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, you guys might know, in the opening part of that movie, Ricky Bobby's like the king, right? He's like winning all the NASCAR races, he's like ruling the world, all of that stuff. He has all this glory, and then some like Italian dude comes and beats him in a race, and what happens? He like loses his house, he loses his wife, he's like living with his parents again, his kids are super rebellious, he loses all of his sponsors, he loses everything that he had. Why? Because the moment that he was not the guy anymore, all those things that he found his worth and value in didn't care about him. They wanted nothing to do with him because he wasn't it anymore. And I have to think that as these Israelites were being carried away from home, seeing what was once theirs being used to serve another god and being used to serve another king, it would have been easy for them to feel like they were all alone. This thing that I had once put my hope in doesn't care about me. In fact, it has no thoughts about me whatsoever. In a moment, it was being used to serve something else, something that's causing me pain and suffering, and I am alone. I have to imagine that's what they would have been thinking. And we would think that too, right? Until you look at what God was doing in all of it. So if you guys look at verse 2, it was God who was in control, right? It says, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Who was the one who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to invade Judah? God did. And if you look at all of the chaos that would have seemingly been happening at that time, it did not throw God for a loop. God is still active and present in that situation, even when it would have seemed like all was lost. Okay, continue, continue on in verse 9. It says that God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. God was giving his people good things despite them no longer being in the place that they once found their security and home. <clears throat> what would have seemed like the final moments of everything that defined them, all the things that marked the Israelites, we see that God is still present and living and active in their lives. None of these other things had loyalties. None of these other things cared about him. None of these other things were there once they weren't the guys and girls anymore. But God was. This God who they had rebelled against and rejected, he was still there. Here's what's wild about all of that. All the things that were taken away from the Israelites were entirely circumstantial, right? They had had them as long as they were in power and while they were their own nation, but the second they lost that status and that sovereignty, it was gone. It didn't matter who they were. It didn't matter how long they had the things. The beautiful things of the temples were only theirs as long as they did what they needed to do to defend them and hold them close to their chest. But with God, he was with them everywhere. They could take away all the things of God, the Babylonians could, but they couldn't actually take away the God of Israel himself. And the God of Israel himself was with his people. While the things of this life, they're with us only as long as we are successful 
and only as long as we are stable, and only as long as we have control, as though we ever really had that, over our situations, they're there only as long as we can hold them close to our chest, which means that they don't love us, they have no thoughts on us, they're dead. But God is alive, and God loves his people, and God draws near to his people, not because of what they've accomplished, but solely because they are his. That's it. You can try and earn it all you want, but God's going to repeatedly say to you, don't do that. Stop trying to earn it. That's not why I'm here. And so we need to, we need to ask ourselves then, what are we looking for in this land of death that's maybe keeping us going? Right, because we can recognize things aren't as they should be. There's something that we're looking to that's like kind of our hope, right? The, maybe it's our temple that we're boasting in. Is that school and grades? Is that getting the, the really cool internship or the best job? Maybe it's getting the best like significant other, that person that everybody kind of covets. Maybe it's doing the coolest thing, going on the coolest road trips, having the best social media, being the loudest person in salt company, being the wisest person in your connection group. What in this life, in this land of death that we find ourselves in, are you putting your hope in that will inevitably leave you when things don't go your way? And if that happens, all we need to do is we just need to look at the faithfulness of God who's waiting for us with open arms which is super fascinating when you think about it. He's the God who never leaves his people. He's the God who's always inviting his wayward, his wayward children to come back to him and to look for him for strength as they eagerly await the homeland where everything will be made right. So if you want to know practically what this looks like, practically, first thing, how do, we, how do I remember God's faithfulness how do I remember the one who will never leave me, is not circumstantial, is not based on my successes, is not based on how much of the man that I am or the woman that you are? What do you do? I think practically, you, just, you literally just have to meditate on God. You should meditate this week on all of the ways in your life that you have seen God come through and show you himself whether that's writing down in a journal, going for a walk to think about it, talking about it in connection group, whatever it is, meditate on what God's done in your life. Because I think that if you're feeling the pressure of feeling like everything is lost, there's no stability, this world is not my home, remembering the one who has always been there might do something really, really good for your soul. So that's the first thing we do, right, is we remember God's faithfulness. But the second thing we do, and this is kind of the thing I was really excited about. Obviously, I was really excited about the first one. The second thing I've been particularly excited about is we take steps of faithfulness ourselves. Look back at verse 8. It says, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself with the wine that he drank. 
you have to think about where Daniel was at here. Okay, so we know that Daniel was part of the royal family, which means that if Daniel was part of the royal family, he had everything that he could have ever wanted or needed, right? He had riches, he had great food, he had all this family, he had all the stability in the world, he was living in the royal city, he had the great houses, he had all the comfort he could possibly imagine. Suddenly, Jerusalem is attacked, he's lost everything that he ever put his hope into, the safest place in the world, Judah, and his royal family members were dying all around him being killed, and just dying all the time, all around him. And now, the king who is in power is essentially telling him this. You know what? You can have it all back. You can have all the comfort and all the status and all the pleasures that you previously had. It can be totally back to normal if only you will follow me and worship my God. Which, if your little Bible red flags are going off, you know, kind of sounds like what Satan tempted Jesus with on the mountain, right? When he said, I will give you all of this if you will bow down and worship me. Before Daniel, a bunch of the kings in Israel and Judah fell for the same bait, right? They saw this promise of security, the promise of prosperity, the promise of no suffering in this life, and that was enough to get them to completely abandon their God. It seemed then like it would only make sense that Daniel would fall for the same old trick. If he could have everything that the world has to offer, then surely he would take it, right? Um, so four years ago, this would have been the summer after my sophomore year of high school, or college, I mean, I, yeah, not that, I'm a little bit older than that. Summer after my sophomore year of college, my high school, four of my high school best friends and I went on a road trip out to Glacier National Park in Montana, which is unbelievable. It's probably top two of all the national parks I've been to, so if you have a chance, you should go there. But I was kind of in this season where for the last year, God had been making it clear to me that not everybody who says that they're a Christian is a Christian, right? There are people who like claim something but don't actually live it out. And I remember one night laying in the tent with all, all the dudes, and I was talking to one of them, and he was saying how he would go to parties, and we were 20 at the time, he would go to parties and get really drunk so that he could share the gospel with freshmen who were at the parties, because if he was drunk, it would disarm them. And I remember being like, I hate that so much. Because how can you tell someone about the freedom that Jesus gives us from sin when you are actively giving yourself into bondage to sin? You're preaching a false message. Here's what was happening. He was buying into the lie that you could have one foot in the world, have all of the things you could possibly want in this life, that your sinful flesh could possibly want and still be a Christian. This was the promise that the Israelites were facing here in Daniel. You can still be an Israelite. You can still be who you are as long as you change your name, your food, what you drink, who you worship, everything that defines you. And you know what? If you do that, you can have everything you would ever want 
And isn't that the promise for so many of us? It's like, hey, did you know that you can be a Christian still? This is crazy. Did you know that you can be a Christian still if you are going out and getting drunk every night and sleeping with whoever you want and not actually ever worshiping God, and if you have no markings of Christ on your life? Essentially, the question that always gets asked to all of God's people for all time is, did you know that you can still be a Christian even if you don't bear any of the marks of Jesus in your life? Even if nobody would know. You can have it all, right? That's what Daniel was facing. And that's what we are constantly facing. But Daniel realized that he could not keep one foot in willful sinning and in something that was actively seeking to take him away from his God and still be a follower of his actively faithful father who had been so present and so faithful to him. So Daniel determined that he would not defile himself. He wouldn't take that step. He determined that he would not lose his distinction as one of God's people, the thing that marked him. But just determining that he wouldn't defile himself wasn't actually enough. He was actively faithful, which means that Daniel actually took steps towards faithfulness. He approached the chief eunuch, the man who would have been in the back pocket of Nebuchadnezzar, and asked him, hey, dude, can I actually, rather than eating all the royal food that you're offering me, can I just eat vegetables and drink water for three straight years, and that's all I do? That's it. Can I do it? And you know what? The eunuch essentially said no to him at first, because he's like, I'm going to die if you do that. And Daniel was like, okay, I get it. How about we just try it out for 10 days and see what happens? And what happens after 10 days? After 10 days, those four Israelites already were bearing the marks of faithfulness on their bodies. They looked healthier than anybody else who was around. Their faithfulness to God showed immediately. Here's what this isn't telling us. It's not preaching to us some prosperity gospel that if we're Christians, everything will be easy and we'll have all the health and smooth sailing that we could ever want. Because if we, if we read just a couple of chapters later, we know that there are some troubles that they get themselves into in this life for being faithful to God. But here's what it is saying. If you are truly faithful to God, your life will look like it. Faithfulness without the marks of faithfulness. It's like in The Office when Michael Scott says, I declare bankruptcy. And Oscar is like, you can't just say bankruptcy and expect something to happen. And Michael says, I didn't say it. I declared it. <laughs> Michael didn't do anything. He just said something. There were no markings. There was no action that was taken towards it. He could say it all he wanted, but it wasn't true. If we're claiming to be Christians, but our lives don't look like Christian lives, we're just declaring bankruptcy with no action steps. And faithfulness, this is wild. 
it's not just a one-time thing. Because we can all leave this room and be like, okay, I'm going to fight for faithfulness tonight. But when you look, Daniel and the rest of these guys were faithful for three straight years. And I'm sure there were times when they were facing temptation from looking at all the food and all the wine that the, that the other people were just basking in, right? As they're like drinking their water, getting ready for dinner on the kitchen table, and they're eating their little bowl of broccoli comes out. And they're like, okay, here we are. I guess I'll do it again. But they did it. They did it because they saw a father who was faithful to them, and they wanted to emulate the faithfulness of their father. So for, this, for those of us who are in the room, this is what that means for us. We need to repent and turn away from anything in our life that's damaging to our relationship with Jesus. All of it. We can't pretend that we're following Jesus if we're actively worshiping the gods of Babylon. Or the gods of Iowa City. Or the gods of the University of Iowa. Or the gods of the corporate ladder. It's Jesus or it's not. And here's the good news. If you find yourself as maybe you're one of the people who's like, man, I have been worshiping something else. I get it. I've been you. Here's what's cool. Jesus will gladly look at you as you turn back to him and go, hey, I've been waiting for you. Let's go. Come on. I would love to show you more of myself. And for those of us who are struggling with knowing what faithfulness looks like, like you're like wondering, okay, what can I do leaving this room? I would say this. Whatever you can think of that draws you near to God, do that thing. If that's committing to reading your Bible every morning, if that's committing to spending time in prayer with God, if that's committing that you're going to share the gospel with that friend of yours who doesn't know Jesus but doesn't know what they're missing, or if that's all of the above, do it. You should run as far and as fast in the direction of Jesus as you can because I think we have four men here in this passage of Daniel who would say it's absolutely worth it. And if you've remembered God's faithfulness, and if you've taken steps towards faithfulness yourself, then there's only one other thing that we need to do if we truly want to live in a land of death. We need to get ready for an adventure. Look at verse 17, continuing on. It says, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind, and at the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch had presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah, so they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. After the faithfulness of these four dudes, God grants them wisdom and understanding in all things. He even gives Daniel the ability to interpret dreams, which is pretty crazy, a gifting that he gives Daniel. And what happens out of this? 
After three years of faithfulness, they get brought into the king's presence. Nobody's wiser than them. Nobody has better understanding of things than them. They enter into the room of the most powerful man in the region. And I don't want to spoil anything for you guys, but some pretty crazy things happen after these three years of faithfulness. Someone gets rescued from a lion's den. Some people get rescued from a furnace. Someone interprets some pretty crazy dreams of Nebuchadnezzar's. What's wild about this is that this wouldn't have happened if they wouldn't have said, I'm going to fight for this dietary restriction for three years. For three years, I'm going to eat vegetables and drink water. And you know what God's going to do? Unbelievable things. Isn't that the smallest way to be faithful that you can possibly imagine? It's just what you eat. And God does crazy things through it. And this is what happens in the lives of God's people, right? It might not be that you go into the presence of a king or a president or a prime minister, but it might be that you actually see one of your parents get saved. And a lot of us in this room know we really want that. It might not be that God rescues you from a lion's den, although it certainly could be that. That would be crazy. But it might be that God, that God calls you to be a missionary and go overseas and preach the gospel to people who have never heard it before. And then you're in heaven someday with a ton of people from that people group worshiping because they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed it and now they're saved. Or it might not be any of that. But it might just be that through your little acts of faithfulness, Jesus shows you more of himself. Because that's what's also amazing, is that every act of faithfulness that Daniel did showed him more of God. If Daniel hadn't tried to ask the chief eunuch if he could eat vegetables and water for three years, then he would have seen God as like a king of kings, right? The one who was like, directing what Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiakim did. But he wouldn't have known God as a compassionate and kind father. Or if God, or if Daniel wouldn't have taken another step and con continued to ask for this exception, he wouldn't have known God as a compassionate provider, the one who gives good things to his children. Every step of faithfulness that Daniel took led to another opportunity for God to display himself in new and incredible ways that stirred Daniel's heart for God. And isn't that what we all want at the end of the day? It's just more of Jesus. God seems to do it like this. And isn't that ultimately the story of God's people? Because throughout the entire Old Testament, we see a lot of failures from people, for sure. But we also see a lot of incredible acts of faithfulness that lead to next things happening, that ultimately lead to 2,000 years ago, when Jesus is born to a Jewish tribe. And he lives the perfect life in quiet faithfulness for like 30 years. And then he goes and he preaches the kingdom to people, and they kill him for it. And then he rises from the dead, telling us, you know what? I died for you. So that not only will you be seeking me in this land of death now, you will actually be living with me for eternity. 
if you will believe. That faithfulness, God enables us to follow him through it. And that's just super good news. Guys, would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for allowing us to be here tonight and allowing us to just open up your word together. And God, what a joy that it is that regardless of how good of a sermon it is or regardless of how good of worship it is or regardless of how tired we are or how stressed of a season we are in, God, that if we just come together and hear from you, man, you just do really, really cool things through that. So God, we thank you that you're an actively faithful father. And we pray that you would just lead us to be actively faithful children. And that if there's anyone in this room right now who just needs to be reminded of your grace, that they would be reminded of it. And that they would just go and run as fast and as hard in the direction of faithfulness as they possibly can. Jesus, we can only do this if you Give us the strength and the desire to do it. So we pray that you would. We love you. We need you. We praise you always, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.